Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guests are the hosts of the Heterodorks Podcast, Nina Paley and Corinna Cohn. But before I introduce them, I have a quick announcement regarding the Unspeakeasy. That is the intellectual community for free-thinking women you keep hearing me talk about. We're going to have a number of retreats in 2023. And the first one I am hereby announcing. It's going to take place in Los Angeles, February 18th and 19th. That's a weekend. Most of the retreats are a little longer, three nights, four days kind of thing. This one is just two days over the weekend, but it's going to be pretty spectacular. We're going to have guest speakers, all kinds of uh, fun unspeakable, nuanced AF activities, discussions. We don't do activities. Don't worry. There's nothing. We don't do like trust exercises or anything like that. So if you want to find out about that, go to theunspeakeasy.com and request information. Okay. So if you are interested in the subject of, wait for it, gender, you should be familiar with the Heterodorks podcast. Its hosts describe themselves as a turf and a tranny. That's their words. And for the last few years, they've been meeting regularly to talk about the new gender movement. Now, there are more and more podcasts like this, but Heterodorks is different in that it pairs two people who occupy uh, social categories that are generally thought to be at odds with one another. Nina, who has reclaimed the label turf or trans-exclusionary radical feminist, found herself on the wrong side of the trans rights movement after some Facebook comments led to the censorship of her work and boycotts in her local community, her real-life community, that is, not just her online community. Corinna is a trans woman who began a gender transition at age 17 back in the 1990s. She makes a point of saying that she is a biological male and that neither science nor medicine can change that. And she's been vocal in her opinions around things like gender youth medicine, the participation of transgender girls and women in female sports, uh, which she spoke about in front of the Indiana House of Representatives earlier this year. Corinna is a software developer in Indiana. Nina is an illustrator, animator, and filmmaker in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. The two are good friends, and that really comes across in their podcast. I will say that Nina uses he, him pronouns for Corinna, which might be a bit jarring at first, but which we're going to talk about. I also will just say at one point we make a reference to the Pritzkers, which doesn't really get explained. It's not a big deal, but just so you know, the Pritzkers are a philanthropic family whose many causes include research and development around transgender medicine. It was just a quick aside, but I wanted to clarify that. And with that... Here is my conversation with Nina Paley and Corinna Cohn. Nina Paley and Corinna Cohn, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you. Thank you. So I try to come up with concise introductions for my guests, but you two contain such multitudes that in trying to figure out how to introduce you, I was, I was a little stymied. So I thought maybe I would start by saying what I think I know about you. And then you can either you can correct me or add on to it. So Nina, you are an illustrator, a filmmaker, an animator. You call yourself a free culture activist. And I want to know what that means. 
Corinna, you are a software engineer, I believe. That is your job? Yeah, that's more or less correct. Okay. That's a great that's a great job to go along with having a podcast. So I'm already envious. You are also a male to female transsexual, your words. You transitioned in the 1990s when you were 19, I think. And in recent years, you've been pretty vocal among those who are speaking out against uh, the current trends in youth gender medicine and also, um, you know, transgender identified people in girls, women's sports, that kind of thing. But you're here mostly because you're the co-host of the Hetero Dorks podcast, which I listen to a lot and I really love. So I'm excited to talk with you. Maybe we could just start by you guys explaining how you found one another and why you decided to to do a podcast um, at all, uh, let alone in the heterodorks space, which we all occupy. Heterodorks space. Yeah. Well, space. I met Corinna in Washington, D.C. in, I believe, 2019. I was staying in the hotel room of Lisa Marciano at a feminist event. And Lisa was going to have breakfast with Corinna. And I had heard of Corinna's existence about a week before. I'd seen a video with Corinna and was very excited to go with and was very hungry when I showed up. And Corinna gave me a bag of almonds that he keeps in his purse. And like you're like Barack Obama. <laughs> Doesn't Barack Obama only eat nine almonds a day? He does. And, Do you remember and, uh, that? That's his whole diet. Otherwise, yeah. he just drinks water and, and breathes air. And yeah. uh, he's he's a remarkable man. Breakfast of champions. Sorry, mm. I didn't mean to interrupt you. But. Oh, that, yeah, that's okay. Anyway, uh, we talked and Corinna made it pretty clear that he doesn't police pronouns. Hence, me referring to Corinna as he to this day. And yeah, that's how we met. Okay, we're going to get to the pronoun thing. All right, Karina, what's your version of the story? That is totally accurate. Okay. I, I guess we we saw Megan Murphy speak, and I think Kel Kelly J. Keene was there, and a couple of other speakers. And I made a couple of friends and got a couple of cold shoulders. So I, I got the, the whole experience. It was pretty good. But Nina and I... I think at some point during the pandemic, started having dinners together where mostly she would watch me eat and make faces and we would have good conversations. <laughs> Zoom dinners. Corinna is keto. Corinna is yeah. practically only eats meat. I'm vegetarian. So I would make a big bowl of popcorn and crunch it gleefully. Yeah, and I, I would eat animals in front of her, and we'd have good conversations. What does thought, this say about biological sex? Did you ever think uh, about that? Hmm. Oh, mm. good question. Um, so, Corinna, what were you doing at a feminist conference? Was that something that you would do a lot? Have you made the rounds? I was interested. Actually, I've been a, a supporter of Feminist Current for a, a number of years, and I'd always wanted to hear Megan Murphy speak. And that seemed like a, a good opportunity to get to some place where I used to live in DC, so it was easy for me to make an excuse to, to go there and to see her speak as part of my trip. And it just was serendipity that a couple of other people I knew would be there to uh, meet as well. As, as Nina said, uh, Lisa Marciano was there. So it just worked out. Shortly before that event, I was thinking... 
I need a token trans because people were just not going to listen to me. I was branded a turf and most of the people that were speaking critically of modern gender ideology were women and we'd get branded turfs and that was that no one would listen to us anymore. And also people accused me of hating trans people, which was crazy because I had a history with trans people. I had some trans identified ex lovers and lived most of the nineties in San Francisco and had a lot of tranny friends and, uh, you know, I just had no animosity towards trans people whatsoever, quite the opposite. And I was just like, uh, you know, if only, if only I had a token trans to show people, uh, not that it would do any good. And I realized that that was, you know, a, an absurd and patronizing concept, but well, I don't know. It could be a good side hustle for somebody. Well, yeah. The thing is, when I met Corinna, I said, Corinna, I need a token trans. Corinna seemed uh, ready to do that. But I think what ended up happening was I became Corinna's token turf. Oh, that's really nice. See, sometimes it works out. They need to have like a like a task rabbit for trans uh, side hustles or any like a person of color. It could be like trans rabbit. And if you need uh, some sort of human shield, if you want to <laughs> you know, say an opinion and you can just have somebody right there. See some of my best friends. This is why I do the pod. My other podcast with Sarah Hader because she's a person of color. Yeah, that's 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 the main and thing. She me say whatever I want. She's a well-known person of color. Yeah. That's Sarah Hader. Yeah. I actually pay her. See, people don't realize that. I pay her to just let me say say stuff. Do you, okay. do you, do you feed her snacks? Because that's what I earn to be Nina's token training. Oh, no, I don't know what she eats. I don't have I don't have a bag of almonds. I don't walk around like that. But okay, so let's think about this. This was 2019 that you two connected. So you were already being called a turf at that time, Nina. And I know that you had had an incident, a cancellation incident regarding a film that you made. But I admit, I don't really know the whole story. So was this turf designation a direct result of that incident? It wasn't an incident. The, the whole cancel experience was long and drawn out. It included my film being canceled from multiple venues. More significantly, it prevented the film from being invited anywhere in the first place. I mean, I had a few screenings, but it was my second film called Seder Masochism. My first film was called Seat the Sings the Blues. It was a festival darling. But when Seder Masochism was finished in 2018, that was right when my cancellation was getting very hot and a few festivals didn't get the memo beforehand and invited it. And I think a lot more festivals did get the memo and it, it's second film is much more obscure. But what happened is on Facebook, I shared a song written by the late Connie Bryson. The lyrics go, if a person has a penis, he's a man. And I shared that. That was sort of my, my coming out as gender critical after thinking about it for more than a year. There was a woman in Canada who had gone to a women's march. She had a sign that said something like biology isn't hate. And this Canadian trans politician, Morgane Ogre, was sort of hunting her down. And it was scary. And I thought, I have to show some solidarity 
for women who are being victimized by speaking up. And that was the moment I decided to share this. And I got thousands of comments and, you know, got Facebook jailed a couple times. And uh, after that, I was known as a notorious transphobe. And were you blindsided by this? It sounds like you knew it was pretty radioactive because you had sat around thinking about it for a year. But was it, did it exceed your, your expectations? It massively exceeded my expectations. I thought, okay, some people will be upset online. So there will be people saying mean things about me online. I did not think that was going to spill over into the real world. I did not think that was going to make actual screenings canceled. And I did, I mean, I thought there were grownups but there weren't. That was what was so shocking. Like the people that are in charge of these institutions that are in charge of theaters and festivals and speaking programs, right. they, I don't know, they were not being adults. They just caved instantly. Yeah, I know. I think that's actually what frustrates me the most out of all of this is that there are, the leaders of cultural institutions are not leading. Like you get to be in charge of a film festival ostensibly because you know a lot about film and have a certain aesthetic and have certain abilities as an arbiter of, of taste and content. And uh, instead, they're ceding all their authority to their rank and file. But anyway. Okay, so Corinna, you transitioned in the 1990s, and you're now one of the few trans-identified people who is speaking out against the ideology, as we're seeing it playing played out by activists. When did you start to notice that I guess, A, there was an ideology going along with this identity in the first place, and B, that it was sort of going off the rails. When I transitioned in the 90s, there were a lot of different backgrounds for people who are transitioning uh, politically. There are people from the left and right, and there was a, a very individualistic spirit. What I noticed in the early 2010s was there was a lot of consolidation around left-leaning or, or leftist politics. And not only were a lot of people talking about building coalitions with different sorts of left-wing factions like immigration or abortion, but there was also a lot of social pressure to adopt that same sort of political viewpoint and to espouse it as well. And any sort of contrary opinions were very looked down upon and quashed. So that was interesting to me because I've always been something of a contrarian. I remember there was a particular incident where somebody was railing against George W. Bush for having signed the Defense of Marriage Act into law. And when I corrected this person and I, I said it was actually Bill Clinton who had signed it into law, <laughs> that created conflict. And I was like, but I'm not trying to agitate you. I'm trying to correct your mistaken impression of history. And uh, it was at that point that I realized, look, if I wanted to be in the trans community, I was really going to have to either shut up or start copying the sorts of political jargon that I was hearing from the people who were at the center of it. And uh, that's unfortunately, that's not something I've ever been good at. What did trans community mean to you, if anything, in the 90s, say? I was 
involved in the online trans community back before there was a graphical web browser. So Okay. So you were good at you knew what you were doing online. Yeah, okay. Mosaic didn't even exist at that point, which is very retro. And it was uh, all text and I fell in with a group of people on something called a IRC, which still exists. I think a lot of people fleeing Twitter have been evaluating it as a possible platform and that makes me laugh. But there was a group on IRC that took me in and gave me a lot of affirmation, gave me some inspiration, told me where I could find somebody that would prescribe hormones, gave me the recommendations on doctors for surgery and really lifted me up. They were a source of friendship and validation and helped me feel good about myself for the first time uh, as a teenager. And I surely owe everything I am today to that group. And when you say that, what's the sentiment? Sarcasm. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> you had a piece in the Washington Post earlier this year. This is from April of 2022. And it was really an incredible piece. And you write... I'm just going to quote a little bit from it. You said, I once believed that I would be more successful finding love as a woman than as a man. And you say, in high school, when I experienced crushes on my male classmates, I believed that the only way those feelings could be turned into reality, I think that's I'm reading this right, uh, it turned out that several of those crushes were also gay. Okay. If I had confessed my interest, what might have developed? Alas, the rampant homophobia in my school during the AIDS crisis smothered any such notions. So it's interesting to me that you were able to find a trans community online, but not a gay community. Was just your, were your immediate surroundings so homophobic that that was sort of a non-starter? I think it's more accurate to say that I had a mistaken view of what was possible for me. There was definitely homophobia that contributed to that, but I had also been bullied pretty terribly in elementary school and middle school and high school <laughs> pretty much all the time. And I didn't feel like, you know, I, I, I had gay friends by the time that I graduated from high school, but by that point, I had already felt so alienated from men and masculinity that I just had a, a distorted sense of myself and I just wouldn't have even been able to imagine going into a space that had only men in it. Hmm. And what was the first step at that time for transitioning? Like, where did you go? How did you know where to get, start to be medicalized or whatever was the first thing? There is an organization today that is called WPATH. It is the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, but it has its origins in a previous group or, or form that was called the Harry Benjamin Standard of Care, which I, I guess uh, now they've released Standard of Care 8, but I, I don't know what standard of care I would have been under. But back then, there was something that was called the real-life test, which meant that you had to have a social transition prior to any medicalization. So I started that at 18. But I was working with a psychologist I had seen previously uh, for some other issues when I was growing up. So she knew some of my background and was able to feel okay with accelerating me a little bit faster towards hormones. Hmm. And I uh, started hormones when I was 18 and 
Yeah, surgery at 19. Were you growing up in the Midwest? I know you live in Indiana now. Is that where you were living at the time? No, I was growing up in Reno, Nevada. When you and Nina first connected, what was the nature of your conversation? So Nina, were you just kind of at that point saying, oh my God, what is going on? Can you please explain this to me? Sort of where were you at with respect to just understanding all the moving pieces here? I didn't need it explained to me at the time. I needed help because I was... Well, I was being canceled, lied about, denounced. I was very alone, but I also wanted to fight. There was no way I was going to apologize for the things I was saying. And I wanted to fight. I wanted to fight like the people, mostly women, that I admired in this fight. And I wanted to fight in my town because I was canceled really badly in my town. So, yeah, I think I was looking for, you know, an alliance. And when I learned that Corinna lived in Indianapolis, which is, you know, two hours drive from Urbana, Champaign, Illinois, where I live, I was like, yeah, we, we need to be friends. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of things was Nina asking you, Corinna, initially? Do you remember? Yeah, she was asking me to rake up leaves from her yard and then <laughs> mow it and there's some other house where it was, you know, it's, I was just happy to have a friend who was a feminist. Um, <laughs> how did the hetero dorks podcast come about? I have to say it's really good. You two have a, a great chemistry. You, you sometimes have guests. Often it's just the two of you talking about your lives, talking about different issues. You have a great rapport. It feels very natural and very casual, but you're also deeply informed on these things. So how did you conceive of it? Like, what did, did either of you want to do a podcast? Like, how did it come about? Corinna? Yeah, I think we, Nina and I just had, had had some really good conversations during the pandemic. And I think I asked a couple of times, like, hey, Nina, do you think that we can record some of these and put them out there for people to listen to? Because I, I think we actually have some really interesting things to say to one another. And I think it would be cool to get other people's viewpoints and maybe incorporate them into our conversations. I think that's how it started. It, does that sound right? Well, at the time, we were both fans of Blocked and Reported. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. So Blocked and Reported had already started. But this must have been... Okay, so this was 20... Because Blocked and Reported started in spring of 2020. Yeah. And I think we started... When did we start? Did we start in 2021? Early 2021? Early 2021. Yeah. Anyway, Corinna sort of made this joke or something like, yeah, we should do a podcast. And I think said that a couple times. And then one day, I don't think I was doing anything. And I like researched how to do a podcast. <laughs> and I was like, okay, Corinna, I think we're going to do a podcast. Here's the host and I've got the domain. And well, I think we just started. Oh, yeah. I remember I did a, I did a bunch of uh, crummy test recordings on anchor.fm. Okay. And how did you come up with the heterodorks name? Were you like very deep in the rabbit hole of the heterodox sphere? Were you watching YouTube videos of Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter like I was? Like, what was that ecosystem like for you? The John show? The Glenn show. Or the Glenn show. Oh, the Glenn That's show. right. The Glenn show. Goodness gracious. <laughs> Glenn would not John like show. to hear that. No, not at all. Out. <laughs> Dang it. This is, this is like when I... Uh, 
accidentally included uh oh who did i include and anyway it doesn't matter yeah the glenn show yeah i, li- I listened to the glenn larry's podcast yeah. yeah i i can't believe heterodorks wasn't taken already it's like a great word that's nina's genius i came up with it but i wanted to call our podcast turf versus tranny i thought that's our differentiating proposition it's a turf and a tranny we're supposed to be mortal enemies so won't people enjoy you know well, they'll be expecting a fight. So of course, of course, they'll want to listen. And then they'll hear us talking about, you know, weird cultural stuff. But Corinna didn't want to call it that. And I proposed various names, including heterodorks. And Corinna really went for heterodorks. I was like, this is just a, you know, I was tossing lots of names out. Yeah. Well, and you do do a thing where you have a little jingle that you sing and you say heterodorks, heterodox dorks, so people can get the context. Yes, the jingle, like, we were talking about, you know, making our podcast sound professional <laughs> and, and use music. If you listen to the early ones, I'm using the stock music that Anchor.fm has. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, hey, we should have a jingle. I'll just sing the jingle. You know, I don't play any instrument. I don't know how to do any of this. I'll just sing it. And uh, yep, that worked. Yeah, no, it's very original. Isn't the stock, the royalty fee free music that you can go through for the podcast is that has to be the saddest sort of inventory of culture that exists on earth. It's, this is like the music version of stock photos, right? I mean, did you sort through this? I spent like weeks trying to decide on the music for my podcast. And it's like, there's just hundreds of thousands of audio files that like composers, their whole career is, is composing royalty free music. And it's just this meant to fade into the background. <laughs> you don't know if that's their whole career. Well, there's one guy I think it is <laughs> who's, who's, I, I do use his music. We, I guess we don't know that it's their whole careers. Okay. It could be. I was on hold with the power company today and I, I swear the music that they play on hold, I think that they mechanically extract the soul of the composer <laughs> before he goes to work. I, sorry, I, I'm pretty sure it's a guy because I, I don't think that women would tolerate producing such garbage. Women tolerate a lot of crap, Corinna. Yeah, that's very gender essentialist of you. Okay, well, that that's actually a good segue into, you know, I, I want to sort of just, let's talk about your philosophies about about gender. So, you know, Corinna, you're really running against the grain here. You still call yourself a transsexual. We talk a lot in this moment about gender identity. What do you think gender identity is, if anything? That is something that I reevaluate over and over. So my current conception of it, maybe this is stable, is that gender identity is sort of a armor or a shield that you put on when you are not really able to figure out your way in the world as somebody of the sex that you are. So it gives you a chance to put on, I don't think a costume is really a fair way of describing it because I I think the purpose of a gender identity is to be defensive and safe in who you are. So when you can say something like, I identify as a woman, that's like a protective statement saying, hey, all of the ways that I've been abused and criticized for not doing masculinity properly, now I have an identity that gives me some defense against having to defend myself against those accusations. 
And I think maybe for girls who are identifying as boys, it's also another type of armor that says, hey, I'm a boy now, so you cannot sexualize me and treat me in an abusive way because as I'm a boy, therefore, I can defend my dignity and my sense of self-respect without being sexualized. So I I think gender identity is a, a form of armor that lets us figure out a way of getting through the world in a way that where we can manage the type of distorted viewpoints we have about masculine and feminine stereotypes. Oh, that's really, that's very well said. Nina, I think you and I are, are around the same age, and you may have heard me talk about how growing up in the 70s and 80s, I always felt as a girl that there was a pretty wide lane in terms of expression, in terms of how to be a girl. There were lots of different ways to be a girl. And I think that that lane has narrowed in a lot of ways in recent decades. And so my diagnosis was that it's it was so much easier for us to say, well, I'm not a girly girl, but I'm this other kind of girl, tomboy, whatever you want to call it. And it's perhaps harder for young people now. Tell me why I might be wrong about that or, or maybe fill in some of the blank spots there. Like, what do you make of that? I mean, there was certainly wider fashion ranges for girls. It was fine to wear t-shirts and overalls and corduroys, which is what I wore. But I will say that it was totally normal for girls to develop eating disorders in puberty in my generation. I certainly did. So people... I mean, we didn't have the same problems that kids have today, but we all had issues about being thin. In my case, I wanted to be thin, but I also didn't want to want to be thin. I didn't want people to think I was vain. I didn't want to be that sort of person. So there was a lot of lying to myself. I definitely think I would have transed if I had been a teenager now or five years ago. Wow. I had all of the, all of the issues. I would, I was absolutely gender dysphoric. I mean, when I was eight years old, I announced that I wasn't going to wear anything a boy wouldn't wear. And I refused to wear skirts or dresses or anything like that until I was 17 years old. Interestingly, I relaxed on that policy when I started dating men. And I know Corinna has talked about, things that would have been different if Corinna had gotten some sexual experiences prior to transing. And I guess I was getting some sexual experiences. And yes, they did change me. They did change my ideas about myself and my body. And the very fact that men to whom I was attracted seemed to like it, seemed to like femininity for which I had contempt I was willing to experiment more with femininity and, you know, not rule it out entirely and wear a dress once in a while because I got some benefits from that. But yeah, anyway, in my, you know, like when I was 15, I was massively depressed. I really wanted to be a boy. I did not want to be a girl. I had contempt for all things girly. I was what you would call male identified. Wow. Uh, And, you know, the fact that I was so depressed and that my parents were so liberal, I'm certain that they would have 
you know, taken me to the doctor and the doctor would have said, oh, yes, she'll kill herself. Because I would have happily said I was going to kill myself. I mean, that's how I felt. I felt like I was going to kill myself. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing that you didn't have access to whatever this proto social media sphere Corinna yes. was using. <laughs> yes, <laughs> because thing. I would have had just as many problems <laughs> and I would have had additional health problems. Yeah. So is that part of what bothers you so much about this movement? Like, I mean, Corinna, obviously there's reasons for you to think about this movement a lot, but like, aside from the being canceled, Nina, why do you think that you're so interested in this? Well, I'm interested in, I think, I think my biggest concern is the denial of reality. And, you know, if they can make you believe absurdities, they can get you to commit atrocities. It is very bad for society that we cannot tell the truth about sex. And it just warps everything. So I think that's my primary concern. I am concerned about women's rights. If we replace sex-based rights with gender identity, women are going to lose all of the sex-based rights that we've gained over the last hundred years. That's very bad. And finally, it is pretty atrocious that these medical interventions and experiments are done on children. I am, you know, I'm not a bleeding heart maternal type, but this is crazy. And people are going to look back on this time with horror. So that needs to stop. Yeah. And one of the things you hear all the time is trans kids know who they are, right? They know what they are. And so Corinna, when you hear a statement like that, what goes through your mind? Trans kids know who they are. Or kids know who they are. Yeah, They don't. Yeah, they don't. So it's, it's just so amazing to me that somehow there's like a whole generation of adults that have forgotten what it's like to be a kid <laughs> because, you know, ev everything's unstable. And as you get later into your adolescence, you know, I, I used to think that if you started transition at 16 or maybe even a little earlier, that things were firm enough at that point that maybe it would be okay to start transition. Um, I do feel differently about that now. You mean you have felt that as an adult? like Yeah, I, I believe that. In the last 10 years, yeah. And, and frankly, if things had not become so crazy over the last couple of years where the, the standards of evaluating candidates for gender-affirming care had not just fallen through the floor, I might still think that transitioning very, very, very few number of 16 and 17-year-olds might be uh, defensible. Mm -hmm. but in in the current state of things, I don't think that there's any defense for it. Yeah, I kind of felt that way, maybe up until a year or so ago, because I have a lot of empathy for somebody who is facing a puberty that they feel is wrong for their body, and that there's no going back. I mean, I, I'm familiar enough with hating your body, that feeling, that visceral feeling, especially as a teenager, to know how excruciating that must be. But yeah, you know, in terms of these gender clinicians, have you, Corinna, had any sort of direct contact with people who are facilitating these these transitions, people who really believe that this is the future, that there are as many kids that are trans as saying they are? Like, what's been your sort of 
relationship to the clinical community? I am a member or a board member, I guess, of a nonprofit. It's called the Gender Care Consumer Advocacy Network. And we do speak with gender clinicians and professionals who are in the space. And the main thing that we did over the last couple of years was try to persuade people to be adherent to the WPATH standards of care, because although they are far from perfect, they do lay out some pretty clear guidance about ensuring that anybody who's going through this process is receiving care from a team of providers who are able to advise the patient about all of the risks and consequences of transition. And the one thing that I heard from clinicians again and again is that WPATH standards are are too restrictive, that they create a, a sense that professionals are gatekeeping individuals from being able to achieve becoming themselves or uh, becoming their authentic selves, which I think is is not a thing. I don't think there's an authentic self. But the providers, they, and I know this from providers I've worked with personally as, as a patient, the providers really do get something out of these relationships. Uh, there was a story in the New York Times this week about puberty blockers and, and some of the side effects that those can cause. And they interviewed somebody who's very famous in uh, youth gender transition, an endocrinologist, I think he is, uh, named Norman Spack. And if you read what he says, you you can see that it, there's like this religious tone to his words of, oh, you can really see these uh, young people blossom into their true selves. And from... I, I haven't talked to him personally, but I've talked to others. I'm pretty sure that a lot of these people think that they're playing, that they're like midwives to somebody birthing their real self through their gender identity. And they get something from it. They feel like they're an important part of someone's revelation. And uh, that's really dangerous to me because when you feel like you have such a, an important role to play in somebody becoming their true self, if, if you're becoming more of their priest instead of their doctor, I think you start to lose sight of that person's long-term health interests. Yeah, I mean, the, the hubris of so many of these doctors, like you have to wonder if there's just something, if that is a personality type that is more likely to go into medicine anyway. And you have you have this sort of God complex factor, but then a lot of doctors are inveterate rule followers, right? Because that's what you need to be able to do to get through medical school. And um, I've come very late to this realization. I have to admit, I up until recently, I just assumed that like, if you were a doctor, you were really smart, <laughs> right? And it's actually sort of becoming the opposite. There's a, there's a lack of critical thinking. But like, I mean, either of you can answer this. Like, do you do you really think these people believe that uh, there are this many trans people? It just seems it seems like statistically impossible. I mean, yeah, I think I think we call it a religion or a cult for a reason, and I think there are plenty of true believers. Yeah. <sighs> 
and we just haven't recognized them all this time. That's like, that to me is, this gets back into the denial of reality thing. Everybody's going along with this notion that is nonsensical. I agree. It's very upsetting. It's kind of amazing what humans do when they think in groups. Usually it works out. (laughs) But there's these major Uh distortions of reality that occur in groups, move through the groups like waves. Yeah. Well, now we're seeing more and more detransitioners. Corinna, in your experience, either personally or in knowing other trans people, how long does it take to begin to recognize that maybe this wasn't the right choice? I mean, we talk about, you know, there's a, what do they call that gender euphoria, or there's a period of time where there's like an exhilaration around having made this transition. Is it like years? Like, what have you observed? Well, for particularly stupid people like me, it can take years and years. It took decades. So that's probably a bad sign. Well, say more about that because you're obviously (laughs) highly, highly intelligent, but like you were just trying to talk yourself into it. Yeah. Well, good job. (laughs) Yeah. No, I was really committed. So I transitioned at a time where it was really important for people in the trans community to assimilate. The idea at one point was that when you transition, you disappear into society and then you remove your ties to the trans community and you move on with your life and you put your previous life behind you. There were not terms at that time like dead naming or uh, what else is there? I guess that's the main one. I think misgendering was, was a term that was maybe sometimes used, uh, but it's used a lot more now. But all all these terms to describe all all of your previous identity were not around, but the idea was that you would cut away your previous ties and and move on in the world as a member of the, the sex that you were trying to emulate. So that's what I tried to do. I tried to do that for 20 years or so, and notwithstanding the fact that I would occasionally stop in and participate in trans support groups. Like when I moved to a new city and was trying to make friends, um, I always wanted to have somebody who was trans, who knew that I was trans so that I could talk to them about things that I wouldn't feel safe talking about with any of my friends who didn't know anything about my, my previous life. So were you passing like, were you having relationships and jobs and living a life where people just assumed you were any other woman? I think so. But, you know, I think that there's always people who probably knew. Um, trans wasn't that big of a thing back when I was doing it. So there are probably people who thought, well, there's a, a tall and, and a handsome woman. I wonder <laughs> what her story is. You're saying it took you 20 years to start to rethink this. Is that what you just said? Yes, that's that's right. Okay, okay. So, like, do you have occasion to talk to young people now? Or are you considered sort of kryptonite? I mean, the detransitioners, I'm assuming you you do have some interaction with. But, like, have you ever had the opportunity to sit down with somebody who is seriously considering this and who is very much caught up in the movement and tell them about your experience? Yeah, every once in a while, I have a younger person reach out to me, and I try to 
treat them very delicately because I know they're going through a very difficult journey. So I try not to blast them with a lot of warnings. Um, I, I like to tell young people that they should try to be as safe as possible and do as much much research as they can. You know, I don't I don't sit down and try to blast them with a, a bunch of facts because that that puts anybody off, but it really puts young people off. So I just try to treat them delicately. We're going to pause here for a brief message. The Unspeakable with Megan Daum is sponsored by BetterHelp. We talk a lot on this podcast about things like life choices and being guided by honesty of thought, but it's often not that simple. I've been candid here about my own struggles, and I'd be the first to agree that life does not come with a user's manual, but BetterHelp online therapy can be the next best thing. No matter what kind of challenge you're navigating, a career change, starting a new relationship, or becoming a parent, BetterHelp's therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills. That makes therapy the closest thing to a guided tour of the complex engine called you. Now, I've done plenty of therapy myself. Of course I have. I've lived in New York City, and I've gotten a lot out of it. But it's expensive, it can be difficult to schedule, and sometimes you have to go through a lot of different therapists to find the right one. BetterHelp makes all of that easier. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. There's no waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash unspeakable. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash unspeakable. And now back to the conversation. I have this, I don't know if it's a theory, but I've just noticed that those of us who are really, really fascinated slash obsessed with thinking about this incarnation of gender ideology, what's going on with the trans movement, we tend to be a certain kind of woman, right? And I'm trying to sort of distill what that is. Because we're not gay. Sorry, I know Julie Bindle doesn't like to say gay woman, but um, <laughs> we're not lesbians. Some of us are, but not all. Yeah, some it's are. Like we're, yeah, but like we're not. What is it about this movement that is so bothersome, not bothersome. It's fascinating. It's, and I think to me, like the lack of reality, it's like an anti-reality movement. And that's sort of what hooks me. But I think beyond that, there's just something profoundly sad about narrowing your self-definition this way. Like, I love being the kind of woman that I am, right? And to somehow suddenly see that reimagined as a man, it's like a loss, you know? Yeah, I'll say the gender critical women are pretty diverse. They're diverse enough to be viciously factionalized at this moment. Okay, that's true. That's true. Good point. But it's not, we're not getting this from like Kim Kardashian. You know what I mean? We might. <laughs> yes, hopefully. Might pretty soon. And right. you know, then it's going to be over, then right? We, we want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, exactly. 
we liked this band before it got big. Yeah. I mean, and you know, let's speak, speaking of Julie Bindle, you recently had her on and she's a prominent radical feminist. And it was interesting because she's somebody who at once opposes trans ideology and also has this anti-gender essentialist argument in that she thinks that it's cultural forces. It's like it's patriarchy, right? That causes men to be, for instance, more violent or more sex driven. She thinks that that is a function of societal forces around male power as opposed to biological imperatives. And yet she can't stand this movement and is offended by it. And I like, how do you square that? I, I was having a sort of hard time tracking it. Well, she's a materialist, right? How so? She believes that sex is real. Okay. Yes. Bi- she Yes. Okay. She believes that biological sex is real. But if she thinks that men can be sort of educated out of their maleness, that sounds a little bit like something else. Out of, the, out of their violence and domination. Right. Okay. Is I think what she was arguing. And I wish it were so. It's pretty utopian. I, the older I get, the the less idealistic I become, which is pretty impressive because I don't think I was all that idealistic to begin with, but I, I just become increasingly resigned. And I've been contemplating writing an article, I think it would be called Why We Will Never Smash Patriarchy. There are so many reasons. <laughs> why we will never smash patriarchy. (laughs) One of them is that most women are heterosexual and love men. And, you know, as long as you have the majority of women loving men, this, this feminist analysis of, you know, instituting changes or working for changes that will disadvantage men and, and hurt men even if it was only hurting their feelings, women are not going to go for that. Most of them, some of them will. I sure would. But the majority won't. There's got to be at least one other reason that patriarchy won't be smashed, Nina. That's because I think uh, feminists are just going to keep redefining patriarchy to fit whatever sort of problem that they're running into that's, that's at a social scale. Yeah. That's why we can't get rid of capitalism either. And it's why we can't get rid of communism, because if we call it communism instead, we won't be able to get rid of that. (laughs) Yeah. So, Nina, you don't subscribe to uh, this this theory that men are men are suffering. I mean, we're having a lot of conversations these days about how boys are falling behind in school. They're not going to college. They're living in their parents' basements till they're 30. Women are soaring. You know, once women were allowed to gain any sort of opportunities whatsoever they we absolutely soared and now we have a sort of the gender power balance is kind of going the other way so do you think that that is overstated uh i mean everybody suffers right i don't think social change is overstated 
you know, things are definitely different now than they were 100 years ago, 200 years ago, from what I understand, just the fact that women can vote, and women can have bank accounts, and women can be single, and have careers and things like that, and don't have to be married. That's quite significant. And I shouldn't take it for granted. At the same time, like I said, eating disorders abound, you know, all kinds of self-harm. I think girls still make significantly more suicide attempts than boys, even though boys succeed more. But everybody's suffering. And yeah, we're in a we're in a place that we haven't been before socially. I don't really like the simplistic analysis, simplistic sex class analysis that just goes, you know, the male class benefits and the female class loses. I do think that there's a lot of dominance and submission that plays out throughout society where the males are dominant and the women are submissive. And I think a lot of that is amplified socially, but I also think its core is the unchangeable biology of human primates. Right. Well, it's a reproductive strategy. I mean, if we're going to reproduce as a species, we have to keep going along with each other one way or another. Yeah. And also, like, have you read Carol Hooven's book about testosterone? I have not read it, but I'm familiar with with a lot of what she's saying. Yes. Yeah. So she, you know, she talks about this mating posture that female chimps get into and a lot of other female animals get into. And I'm like, yeah, I can relate to that mating posture. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I I can relate to the chimp that, you know, sticks her butt in the air and is waiting for the, the male to come mount her. <laughs> I can relate to that very much. <laughs> My argument is that it's actually easier for women to make certain choices now than men. Like, I've thought a lot about this choosing not to have children kind of thing, right? So, a lot of people will say, oh, the stigma is so much greater for women. We're always getting flack for not choosing to have kids and men get a pass. I I think increasingly, especially in more like urban, you know, sort of educated circles, the women get a you go girl for making those kinds of choices. And the men get called Peter Pans or like they're shirking responsibility or they won't grow up and that kind of thing. So I think that like the double standards they really, it's like a Mobius strip, you know? It's its hard to say. I don't see, that is something I cannot relate to. Mm. That was definitely not the case in my fertile years, which were extremely difficult. The pressure was so huge. The disrespect for my choices was so huge. And men were definitely not getting it. Are you are you around people who are in their 20s, men and women? Are, are you, like, where are you gathering this data? Uh, well, I mean, I'm, yes, it's all anecdotal. That's how I gather data. That's my, it's my data. That's set. fine. My, my data is anecdotal too. I just want some stories. Well, you know, and again, I think that, yeah, you know, look, I'm a writer. I hang around people in the arts. I'm not hanging around like people who value family above all else. And I also come from a family that was not very family oriented. So <laughs> I always said my father, my father, he, you know, he, he, he rose to the occasion and he was a good, good enough father, but you know, he always 
by his own admission, he said he never should have had kids. So I always say I'm, I'm fulfilling my, my father's dream by not having kids. So do you have siblings? Uh, yeah. And he doesn't have kids either. Yeah. We really, uh, yeah. Our, our parents just should not have no, nobody wanted to be there. Let's just put it that way. It's nothing bad, no abuse, nothing terrible, but uh, we all were just sort of, we were just kind of four individuals who had been handed roles of being in this nuclear family anyway. But, but that's, that's another thing. I'm, I'm just sort of, you know, back to the whole gender conversation. I'm really like, you talk about the self-harm and the suicidal, the suicide attempts. I don't know. Like, I, I guess it really depends on sort of where you are and who you're hanging around with, because I would look at this like, okay, su- first of all, suicidal ideation is very different than suicide attempt, right? Like ideation, that's a very broad term. So I think like a kid could say like, oh, I want to kill myself. I thought about killing myself. And that might get swept up in the category of being suicidal, quote unquote. But I think that girls, they're capable of some real emotional damage. Oh, yeah. We're really good at gaslighting and manipulation. Really good. Absolutely. Girls are are horrible little monsters, even as they're suffering. And that's the thing. It's like this, this simplistic oppressor and victim analysis. It's like over oversimplistic. I mean, oppressors suffer. Victims, you know, can also, yeah, they can also victimize. Yeah. Well, Corinna, I heard you say something about there being an overlap between the incel phenomenon and the trans phenomenon. Can you say more about that? There's an incel to trans pipeline, actually. There are forums that are set up that I I don't know how serious this is, because I I have to admit, I haven't met somebody in in my day-to-day life that seems to have followed this pattern. But you can go and look on Reddit and develop your own judgment as to how authentic this phenomenon is. But there's this idea that's called transmaxing. Have you heard of this? Maxing? Transmaxing. No. Yeah. If if you can't get a girlfriend, you become the girlfriend. (laughs) Isn't this what Gloria Steinem said? We are becoming the men we wanted to marry. See, there you go. (laughs) There's a a certain beautiful symmetry there, isn't there? (laughs) Gloria, she she should be proud. Yeah, these guys, they still are animals because we're primates and they still want to go reproduce because the sex drive is one of the most powerful drives, you know, just second to checking your Twitter timeline. <laughs> and well, that is a sex act. It Well, not in my mentions, but <laughs> depends I, on what, guess, what you're into. Yeah. Masturbatory. Yeah. <laughs> Choking. DM yeah. me sometime. Um <laughs> But these these guys are are lonely, you know, and they see the the trans community is like the the most affirming, the most inclusive, the most welcoming. It's transformative, really. It's in the name, and I think some of these guys think, "Hey, look, no woman wants me. I've tried. I keep striking out. I've been rejected." And there's a lot of evidence that. People who transition are the center of attention. They get a lot of affirmation, pats on the back. And I, I think for some of these very lonely people who probably have a, you know, in, because they don't have relationships, they probably have very high usage of uh, visual supplementation to their 
sexual uh, excitement, pornography, uh, I think they probably, uh, a number of them, find themselves contemplating transition as a possible way out of their loneliness. Wow. That's, Nina, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Jives with my observations. And do they think that they're going to like get a partner because within the trans community, there's a sort of like people will date, like now they're going to be what they're going to be a trans woman and that there are women who, who want that. There are girls who want to be with a boy who identifies as a girl. There's an audience for that. I guess now. so. And, and, you know, I'll tell you that from conversations I've had with men who've detransitioned that there are actually women out there who enjoy being in a relationship where there's a dynamic that they are part of somebody else's transition. Oh, yes. Oh, no, I've heard these stories. And I've I had at least one person on the podcast talking about this. Yeah, that the girl will really sort of goad is the wrong word, but encourage the boy to transition. What is that? I was one of those. I was one of those women. Like I said, I have a couple trans ex lovers. And I was really into for a while putting makeup on my boyfriends and affirming them and all that stuff. But that was a, a private and personal thing that was not, you know, making everybody in the whole world affirm you. <laughs> you was, weren't starting your own movement. I right. was okay. quite happy to do that to my lovers because that was before I knew what autogynephilia was and narcissism and all of these things. And I was just a very horny and somewhat messed up young woman. But so you were doing this, like, I mean, you don't have to get into too much detail, but was this like sexually arousing or was it just sort of amusing? It wasn't sexually arousing, like not in any male sexual way. At the time, I think I had this idea that a lot of people have now that this was somehow a, a challenge to patriarchy and that these were like extra wonderful men because they were willing to drop the machismo and, you know, I thought there was something feminist about it. It was, it was basically very naive third wave sex posi feminist delusion. Right. And this was in San Francisco? Yes. So this was all sort of part of the like sex positive kink scene. Not that you were or were not in that, but was that, that was sort of the, the aesthetic. I wrote an article about my involvement in that scene, actually. I, I was involved in sex posse, San Francisco kink and all that sort of stuff. And I have thoughts about it now that I'm older. Can you say a few of those thoughts? That was pretty messed up. <laughs> I mean, so are we seeing something where autogynephilic men are sort of passing themselves off as hip queers and sort of making a subculture out of it? Well, I wouldn't, I, this I wouldn't blame on them. I mean, I was pushing this along. I was, you know, really intrigued by the idea and very, very encouraging of it. You know, were they passing themselves off as anything? I think they were just like cross-dressing because they found that thrilling. And then they would come across naive and delusional and self-righteous me. And I would be into it for dumb reasons. I don't think they were passing themselves off as that at that time. They probably are now. But the thing is, it takes 
it takes two to tango, right? Like it's, you know, when I think about smashing patriarchy and how it's never going to happen, it's, it's like, yeah, we're not, we're not going to change men's behavior. That shouldn't really be the focus, but like, I, I act differently now. I mean, I see my role in a lot of the, you know, what I could call abusive relationships and abusive behavior, but I had a a role in it. I was enabling it and encouraging it. And I don't do that anymore. And that's one of the reasons I'm a nasty old turf now is because I don't do that anymore. Corinna, do you have thoughts about that? No, it's just, uh, I'm, this is more detailed than I'd ever heard about that, Nina. So you would help them with their makeup? Oh, yeah. And, you and, know, and their hair? You didn't wear any makeup yourself, probably. Well, I would, I would do that. So the thing is that in San Francisco, I was exploring makeup, too, because prior, like I said, when I was eight, I refused to wear dresses, makeup, anything like that. I didn't even start to wear dresses until I was 17 and started dating. And then when I was 26 in San Francisco, I just decided to go crazy and, you know, got a wig, got makeup. There was drag there. I was really into drag. Basically, I didn't want to wear anything a boy wouldn't wear. But in the Castro in San Francisco, boys were wearing this stuff. And I found that. Uh, liberating. There were all these drag queens. And I was like, huh, I could be like a drag queen. I could do drag. Corinna, what do you have to say about the prominence of autogynephilia with transitioning biological men? Like, what percentage of those men do you think have this? And why does the trans community refuse to talk about it? It's extremely prevalent. I don't know what the exact breakdown is, but Anybody who transitions after starting a, a family with a spouse, any, any, any male who marries a woman and then has a family and transitions is, is almost definitely autogynephilic. Even if they're of a generation where it would not have in any way been possible to transition before they did all that, before they got married? Yeah. And that's why I say almost definitely. I, I suppose there might be a, the odd case to prove the rule, but I, you, can, you can basically safely assume that married men who transition are autogynephilic, which used to be most of them. Right. And we should say, if anybody doesn't know, that's, that's men who are sexually aroused at the idea of themselves as women. And a lot of trans activists like to say this doesn't exist, that this is not a thing. Yeah, it's really upsetting to their viewpoint of themselves as a woman. If, if you to put it into terms of a paraphilia, it makes it somehow, it, it doesn't really, but somehow it makes it so that you're not like your authentic self anymore. You're just somebody who's a, has a perversion. I don't think that's a very fair framing of it because human sexuality is weird. And I don't think that it's fair to describe every deviance from the norm as uh, something that's worthy of moral disgust. But describing autogynephilia as a, as a paraphilia really causes a huge disturbance in some trans women's uh, self-perception. Let's, let's just put it that way. Yeah. So you talked about how you are a medical patient for life, basically. Can you tell us, like, what does your day involve? Like, do you have to take medication every day? What is the maintenance for you at this point? Well, I'm lucky right now in that I have insurance that will cover estrogen patches, which I only have to replace every three days. 
I was taking oral estrogen prior to that. And uh, I guess one of the things that's changed recently, I, I should say, I have to have blood work at least once a year. Uh, if I'm switching treatments, then it's every six months. Uh, and I did switch treatments to get on the, the patch. But one thing that's happened because there's been this huge surge in people seeking medical transition is that it has become more difficult for me to access a doctor who will be able to uh, keep me on my hormone regime. And it's unfortunately, it's something that's medically necessary for me because my, my body, I don't have testicles. So I don't have any way of producing my own sufficient level of, of hormones in order to keep my body healthy. Of any kind. Right. Of any kind, yeah. So it's not like you, if you stopped taking estrogen, what would then happen? You would have neither testosterone nor estrogen. That's right. I would have, uh, the, the biggest deal is that th this happens to everybody as they age. You, you have some loss of your bones, your skeletal integrity, but that would accelerate for me if I was not on hormones. Wow. So like all of these physicians are, are treating, <laughs> treating young people who are coming in and saying they want hormones? I'm putting it in simplistic terms, but that's amazing. You can't find a doctor. It's really, it's really quite serious. <laughs> we are at the very beginning of seeing some of the research come out that shows there are important consequences to destroying your natural endocrine system and, and replacing it with a man-made uh, exogenous hormone system. It, it has cost to it. It's, it's not free. And did anybody tell you anything like that when you transitioned? Like, how was it presented? This is going to be great. This is going to be all roses. You're never going to look back. How lucky, <laughs> we, how lucky we are to have this technology. Uh, you want to hear something really twisted, Megan? <laughs> it used to be, a, I, I think that this particular meme has, has died its death. But 10 years ago, there, there was a meme that was that trans women only live to an average of 35 years. Do you ever, did you ever hear that one? I think maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're only going to live to be 35 years old, because something's going to get you. Oh, because they're going to be killed by a, by a transphobe. I see. I see. I see. Uh, not, not necessarily killed by a transphobe, but, but something will get you. It could be, you know, trans women, uh, when you go on hormone uh, replacement therapy, it makes it harder for you to remember to look both ways before crossing the street. <laughs> So, oh my God, the idea is if you're only going to live to 35, then it sort of doesn't matter what you're doing to your body. So you don't pay a lot of attention to the sorts of things that you might need to know. And in, in case you live on a, a street without public uh, transport that, and you, you accidentally make it into your sixties and seventies or eighties, what the choices that you're making when you're in your teens might force you to consider as, as you reach your senior years. Wow. And actual like doctors and professionals were having this sequence of thoughts. Doctors and professionals, for, uh, you mean for the patients? Yeah, like they were saying, oh, we're just going to do this because we understand that this cohort of patients is probably going to like die freakishly at thirty because they're freaks. Like, because that was that was kind of the line of logic. Goodness, I'm so glad that you asked that because y you know what? That perfectly explains why so many of the doctors right now are are so 
so willing to medicate kids is because they think these kids are going to die anyway. So what harm but is do it? Do they really? I mean, do they think they're going to die like because yeah. they're going to be sex workers and killed by their John or like... I think they're going to no. commit suicide. They're going to commit, commit suicide. suicide if they don't transition, though. Yeah, so so it doesn't matter what we do to these kids because if we don't do it to them, they'll kill themselves. I, I think that uh, that some of these professionals have probably persuaded themselves that that's what the trade-off is. They tell parents that. There are so many parents who I've spoken to, and, and they'll, they'll say, uh, yeah, their therap- my, my child's therapist told me on the first visit, that I have to be affirming of, of my child's gender identity or else they'll kill themselves. I, I thought maybe the therapists and, and clinicians were, were just full of shit, but maybe they believe it. I know personally at least one doctor here who believes it. And why wouldn't she? Because all of the professional magazines that she gets say that. Wow. Right, right. Well, speaking of professional organizations, WPATH has now recognized eunuch as a category. Can you explain yes, that? Yes, as a gender identity. As a gender identity. Like, seriously? Hey, if if you can get some extra insurance coverage for it, then you can you can start charging. You can expand your your surgical uh, menu and make more money, I guess. But people, I mean, are you seeing on forums people saying they want to be like Ken dolls and here's why, like, what do you think is behind this? Oh, it's so, it's so strange. Uh, I got to say the eunuch stuff is outside of my experience. I, I think Nina has, might have a point of view on it though. Nina, you're, you're into eunuchs. I'm into eunuchs. Yeah. Uh, and, and GNU also. Um, <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> I don't know. Corinna said he, she just tossed it to you. That's yeah. all. <laughs> what's, what's with all these eunuchs? What's with all these eunuchs? <laughs> okay, so I have to say that like, when talking about eunuchs, that is how I, like, for me, a eunuch is a real material thing. A eunuch is a man who has had his balls cut off and or his penis, but at the very least his balls. That's a real thing. Like, a, like a castrato. I mean, they would yes. do this in opera singing, for instance, in singing. It's also a category of a lot of animals. I have, you know, a male house cat and his balls have also been cut off. And he's says so my t- Hugo is a, is a eunuch, I guess. Yes. So they do this to lots of animals, including humans. Uh, and I consider this a legit category. And the reason that I think about it this way is that there is a faction of radical feminists, gender critical radical feminists who are like, trans isn't a thing. It's not a thing. And I'm like, yeah, but eunuch is a thing. Wait, what's not a thing? Sorry. They what say are they trans saying? isn't a thing. Oh, tr- right. Okay. Uh-huh. Right. Like, and, and, uh, anyway, we're, we're living in a time where a lot of boys are castrated, but we don't call them eunuchs. We call them trans women and but but the actual procedure is you know making boys into eunuchs and even if they detransition they're still eunuchs and that's my thinking about eunuchs it actually i i thought about it more from a conversation i had with corinna it was a couple of years ago which is like well what would happen if you stopped taking estrogen and 
he mentioned these health risks. And I was like, what are the health risks? Historically, there have been eunuchs. And what were the health risks of historical eunuchs? And there's not a whole lot of record of it, but there's some record of it. And some eunuchs in Korean royal court in the Middle Ages lived, statistically, they lived quite a bit longer than their male counter, their, their intact, their intact male that's because the intact males just fought and killed each other in battle. And as one friend of mine said, it could be because the intact males got syphilis a lot, which wow. the eunuchs wouldn't get. But everybody died at 30 back then anyway. Well, some of these eunuchs lived be... to more than 100. But oh, also maybe... the, the eunuch class in this particular group, they were secure. They were you know, financially, economically secure. They had court jobs. They got to be court ministers. Like you had to be a eunuch to be a imperial court minister in this time in Korea. But we've had other conversations about it. And Korea, uh, Corinna has rightly pointed out to me that a lot of men have been castrated as slaves. And uh, it's not all imperial court eunuchs. And it's a complex thing. But it is kind of weird that we live in a society where eunuch isn't a social category today and trans is, but historically eunuchs have been a, a social category in most civilizations. But have eunuchs, but it's always been at the hand of an authoritative body. It's not like eunuchs, there were people self-identifying as eunuchs and castrating themselves. Right. Eunuch fetish is what we have. So yes, and apparently there is this eunuch fetish and there's this you know a uh, black market shadow castration thing where you know people who had this fetish would find someone to castrate them i guess ritually because they oh wanted to make the most out of their fetish experience and i guess uh that's now being legitimized so that they can have it done in a hospital or something. Honestly, I don't really know about the modern eunuch subculture in the context of the trans umbrella and the WPATH thing, but it is interesting that people are horrified by it. Well, and Corinna, getting back to what you were saying a few minutes ago, this is a new category of surgery. It's a way of making money. So as a, as a patient in this sphere, do you think that this is about big pharma and about surgeons making money? I mean, how far down the conspiracy rabbit hole do you go? Not even conspiracy, I guess, but like how much of this is a is engineered by people wanting to make money? It doesn't go all the way up to the uh, Jewish space lasers. But... <laughs> if you can use get laser surgery to to get castrated, I would think that would be maybe an advancement. Oh no, I, that's that's a good idea. Or, or maybe there'll be some sort of human engineered contagion out of Wuhan that will uh, cause cause a natural castration. Um, <laughs> then people would mask up for sure. Yes. Okay. Oh, that would do it. <laughs> That's that would kidding. do it. Right. New, the, the latest strain, everybody. People would go to <laughs> bed wearing their masks. <laughs> but seriously, like, is this the Pritzker family? Like, what's how much of this should we get wrapped up in? There's a lot of emergent behavior happening here. So to the extent that there is the Tawani Foundation, which is 
run by one of the Pritzkers and, and gives, it does, it really does give millions of dollars to uh, fund different gender programs. But this is, this is way bigger than that. I think any single explanation about why we are where we are right now here will fall apart if you try to make it just the only explanation. So I, I know that in certain gender critical circles, the idea that the, the whole of transgenderism is a capitalist plot by pharmaceutical companies. You know, I, I think the pharmaceutical companies are glad that they have a growing market. I don't, I don't think that they're shy about trying to encourage kids to uh, use their products, right? You know, you, you, Coca-Cola is, is just sugar water that causes diabetes, but Coca-Cola is still advertising it. I don't think these pharmaceutical companies are, I, I, would, I describe them as amoral, but I don't think it's why there's so many kids who are transitioning. Do you regret transitioning? Yeah, that's always a good question. Um, if when you're talking about regret, the thing that you always have to keep in mind is that if you could unwind a decision that you made that you wish that you hadn't made, that there's no proof at all that you would have gone down any better of a road, uh, you might end up worse than where you were. And I'll tell you that at the time that I was transitioning, it was, I think, I think the very peak of the, of the AIDS crisis in the United States was 1995. Last, last time I looked at the figures, uh, I sort of recall that's when the year that there was the most death from AIDS. I transitioned in, in 93. So, and I had uh, a number of uh, gay friends at that point. And if I had been exploring my sexuality as a young gay man, then like several of my friends did, I may very well have contracted HIV. And then, uh, you know, there's an alternate world me where you might be asking, do you regret being sexually promiscuous as a teenager because uh, now you have an autoimmune disorder that you've been living with for 30 years? right? That, that could have been my alternate reality. Wow. This is like the darkest version of sliding doors that I have ever imagined. Like in one version of your life, you would have gotten HIV and died of AIDS. Yeah. If you want to option this for a, a sequel, please. Yeah. Hollywood is ready for this. Believe yeah. me. Um, <laughs> wow. And you have not, I mean, if you've talked about this, you have not really had sexual relationships uh no not really not not any good healthy long-term ones okay nina here's my last question for you and it should have been my first question but i'm gonna pretend that this was all by design why do you call corinna by he him pronouns i use sex-based pronouns i used to you know back when i was into putting makeup on my autogynephilic boyfriends and whatnot I would happily use people's preferred pronouns. I found it subversive and cool. And then when it became compelled speech, I revised my policy, thought about it, and just decided I'm going to use sex-based pronouns for everyone. Corinna's male. And you don't mind, Corinna? I used to, but there's a, a certain amount of, I don't know, if you have self-confidence and self-assurance and you know who you are and you are able to keep your person intact like uh if your ego is healthy enough to 
not be reactive to how other people perceive you, then it, it sort of doesn't matter what people call you. So it, I've gotten to the point where I'd really much rather people choose what they call me and that they, they consciously take control of their own speech instead of feeling like they're being bullied or coerced into calling me something that creates conflict in their mind. So whatever people prefer to call me, that is, uh, they are the owner of their speech. And that's what I prefer. Okay, this really is the last question. What do you guys think this issue is going to look like in 10 years? Like, how long is it going to take for this house of cards to fall down? I wrote an article called The Banality of Stupid in 2017. (laughs) And at that time, I predicted five to eight years. So it's been five years. Okay. I've got just under two years left to go. This is like one of those en- end of the world prognosticators. You have to keep moving the goalposts. Yeah. And I'm just like, please. The end of the world doesn't come. Please, please let it, you know, let me not look like a fool for my time prediction being wrong. Just please let it be within the next two years. Wow. Corinna, what do you think? Well, you know, trans women only live to be... <laughs> 35 years old. So I I don't have to worry too much about the next five to 10 years. I don't think I'll see it. Uh, Wait, aren't you older than, is this your way of lying about your age? I don't know how old you are. Oh, well, everybody thinks I'm younger than I am. So I'm just going to roll with that. Okay. That's good. Like I I lie about my age. I'm actually, I'm I'm dead. That's how young I am. (laughs) You're doing a good job lying. You're very good. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Nina, Paley, and Krinicone. I love your podcast, Heterodorks. It's really funny and just entertaining and also informative. And you have great guests. And I love the way you talk with one another. And I think you're very good. You're very good models for how to talk to other people, but also just how to be totally authentic. I hate, I know you hate that word, but just very, um, just comfortable with yourselves. I feel comfortable with myself when I listen to you guys. Aww. We have the best, we have the best authenticity money can buy. <laughs> merch? <laughs> no, we just You sell authenticity <laughs> as merch. Come on. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. It's like just air. It's like this is just little authenticity. Satchel, sachet. <laughs> we have a, like oh oh authenticity. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna work on that. That's like that's your that's your nuanced AF mug. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. That was my interview with Nina Paley and Corinna Cohn. They are the hosts of the Heterodorks podcast. This is the Unspeakable Podcast. You can now support it by going to its Substack page, my Substack page. MeganDaum.substack.com. If you join as a paying subscriber, you get lots of perks, including early ad-free access to the podcast, you get the opportunity to leave comments, you get to read stuff I write, new stuff. Also, again, the first Unspeakeasy retreat of 2023 is happening in Los Angeles, February 18th and 19th. It's a weekend-long retreat on the west side of LA. Go to the unspeakeasy.com to find out more about it, request information. That's all for now. I will be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.